podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for your love, support, and all that good stuff. Please make sure that you continue to rate, subscribe, and share these episodes. Rate these episodes highly. Subscribe to them. Share them. All that kind of good stuff. Make sure the podcast is going and growing. Your love, your support is so greatly appreciated. I really, really uh, thank you in advance for all the love and support and everything you're going to give. Uh, you can support the podcast through PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. All of those are CPTL Hunter, CPTL Hunter. Anything that you can do in order to keep the podcast going and growing would greatly be appreciated. Um, so today, uh, we're going to jump right into the episode. Today, we have a good episode for us. We have a retired uh, police chief, uh, Raymond Batista, uh, who's going to, who is the co-author uh, of a book called Do No Harm, a book I read. Um, and just talking about police reform and you know what the mission of police departments really should be. Uh, and as the title says, do no harm. Uh, he and his co-author, Mark Zika, uh, are looking at five steps to align police to actions with organizational values, right? So in other words, uh, not just the model and vision statements that are uh, tagged on uh, persons or department's vehicles, but they also want to make sure that those values are being translated to operational uh, engages on the street. So that is uh, what their book is about. So uh, I really appreciated the conversation that uh, uh, Chief Raymond Batista and I had. So just a little bit about his background. Chief Raymond Batista began his uh, law enforcement career in 1986 with the Tulsa Police Department. Uh, he rose to the ranks to assistant chief and then appointment of as a chief for the Mesa uh, Police Department in 2017. During his command uh, of the Tucson Police Department, he obtained a wide breadth of, of experience, starting 11 years as a patrol officer, um, uh, gaining valuable knowledge of police work on the road. He was a field training officer, community resource officer, lead police officer, DUI officer, AZ Post General Instructor, that's the Arizona uh, Post Police Officer Standards and Training Council, General Instructor, Academy Class uh, Counselor, and Undercover Narcotics Officer uh, assigned with the DEA. Uh, he was also a detective in Special Investigations Unit in the Violent Crime Section. After promotion to Sergeant, Chief uh, Batista uh, had a supervisor responsibility with the uh, Public Information Office's Traffic Division and Patrol Operations. As a lieutenant, uh, Batista was, the, uh, was an executive officer to the Chief of Police and played a role in advanced officer training and patrol operations for both South and West Divisions. As Captain, Batista commanded the Chief of Staff, the Specialized Response Division, and the South Patrol Operations Division. As Bureau Chief, Chief Batista commanded the Field Operations Bureau and Investigative Services. In uh, 2017, uh, Chief uh, Batista uh, was selected to lead the Mesa Police Department as Chief of Police. Uh, he retired from that position in 2019. He has a Bachelor's of Science in Public Safety and Homeland Security and a Master's of Science uh, in Leadership from Grand Canyon University. So as we can see, he's done a lot and been a lot of places and all that kind of good stuff. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to get right into the episode. So here is the episode. Uh, here is the uh, interview with Chief Raymond Batista as we discuss his book, Do No Harm, and what's going on with policing today. So thank you so much to my special guest for today, former chief and chief, uh, Raymond Batista. Thank you so much for being on Captain Hunter's podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Captain Hunter, thank you so much. Uh, I know that uh, I've told you this before, but I want you to know that I am honored to be here. You, I think you are really contributing to the to the conversation and bringing a lot of clarity 
to what can sometimes be a, um, a, a difficult topic to to unveil and to kind of pull back the wraps on for 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 all sides to better understand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, you saying so and coming from a chief that really means a lot. And thank you so much. And we certainly are living in some some really difficult times. Um, and certainly what we're going to talk about today, I really want to get your perspective on what you see going on. Um, but before we get into it, let's just uh, hear about yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, please. Yeah, thanks. So I've been in policing um, for about 34 years. I started uh, with the Tucson Police Department and I worked my way all through the ranks. Um, probably a highlight of my career was that I spent 10 years as a patrol officer before I took my first promotion to sergeant. Uh, but then I got to work in just about every area um, of interest that I had at the Tucson Police Department. And I finally uh, retired as an assistant chief. Um, as an assistant chief, I had the opportunity to, to oversee and work with patrol and also investigations at one point. Um, I retired from Tucson to become the chief of the Mesa, Arizona Police Department. And so in Arizona, uh, the Phoenix Police Department is the, the largest police department. Uh, the second largest department is the Tucson Police Department and then followed by the Mesa Police Department. But but in all honesty, both departments are, are about 100 miles apart, but they're about the same size altogether between professional staff and sworn officers, right around, you know, 12, 1300 officers. I mean, uh, personnel. Okay. Very nice. Yeah. And so you retired now from, from the Mesa as well, correct? Yeah, so I retired in uh, late 2019 from Mesa, um, kind of hung out for a little bit. And uh, then in 2020, you know, COVID was upon us. And, uh, you know, as, as unfortunate as it was, the, the, uh, the death uh, of George Floyd occurred in late May. And, uh, and so then we were in a shutdown of the of of the of our society basically and and then sitting on the sidelines watching you know the uh, the unrest and the unhappiness and and the protests over the death of George Floyd um, that's really what stirred me and uh, and my good friend Mark Ziska to um, to write about it and it uh, it really allowed me a lot of time to reflect and think about what my my experiences were growing up and, and becoming a cop and and then now seeing what was occurring across the country it was frustrating to me because um you know as as a person who has studied policing history and one who was always thinking ahead uh what i saw happening around the country and and then manifested and made worse at times by the responses by police departments uh, trying to deal with unrest that they had never seen before just made matters worse. And it just was uh, a situation that for me sitting on the sidelines, I, you know, I wanted to be able to do something. So writing a book uh, gave me a little bit of that outlet to be able to um, to talk about how we can achieve better outcomes in policing and communities and, and truly uh, make policing better. And I really do believe that, I, you know, you got to be an eternal optimist if you're in this profession. And I really do believe that that policing has to, will improve, it will get better. Well, I appreciate your optimism. I, I really, really do. Um, so there's so much I want to talk to you uh, about Chief about. We, 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 we talk about um, uh, the, the history of policing in your book. Uh, I'm gonna hold it up for everyone, Do No Harm. 
everyone, please run out and get this. <laughs> uh, and um, we talk about the history of policing, you, you, and we talk about policing today. And you were a chief, uh, and you, you were a deputy chief. Rose up through the ranks, do, did everything in patrol, just about under the sun that there is to do. What's what's the issue? What what's the holdup? Uh, progressive people like yourself who, who who've grown up um, uh, in, in a city that you, you you are you became a cop in a city that you lived in, correct? Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, so 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 what's the holdup? I mean, what what's what's going on here with with the higher echelon in policing? Tell us. You you sat in meetings with mayors. You sat in meetings with different chiefs. You went to a lot of different uh, schools. What, what's the what's the issue here? You know. Um, uh, I think that a, a part of this is that we have to, in, as policing leaders and, and organizations, I think that we have to be introspective. I think we need to be able to look at the history of policing and, and understand what our roots are and how we started, right? And um, it is so tragic to me that the, 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 that the murder and the death of George Floyd uh, became the catalyst, uh, it, like it required his death, and that is just so sad. But it, it did; re it brought about the catalyst for um, all communities, uh, you know, to communities of color, uh, uh, from for white folks to see the thing that African Americans have been saying for years and years and years that they aren't treated with respect, that they are uh, at times abused. And, and put into situations that, that have just these disparate outcomes. And, and it's so tragic to me that it took the death of George Floyd in order for that to, to come to light. And we saw it because the number of protests across the country uh, didn't have just one demographic. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a, just a, a wide variety of folks, everybody coming out and, 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 and um, just being upset and, and protesting what they were seeing. And so for policing leaders, uh, I think that it is important that we understand our history and where we came from, right? That, that we really were brought about uh, and institutionalized essentially to, to prevent, uh, you know, slaves from running away and to, and to keep people in line. And yes, you know, we have evolved over time since those early roots. But I'll be frank with you, I think that there are very few police departments across the country that have uh, a basic uh, curriculum in the academy that talks about our history, right? I'll tell you how mine started. Our history, our policing history lessons, you know, 30 some years ago, uh, really started with, with the, you know, policing in England. And for the longest time, that was my understanding of how much I knew about how policing had started in the United States. I, I, I didn't know anything about Black Wall Street. I didn't know anything about the injustices that had occurred. I just knew about our relationship to policing in England and how we'd gone through the political model and then the professional model of policing. And, and it, it was almost kind of like it started there when in all actuality, it had happened and been in place and, and bad things have happened so many years and so many decades hundreds of years prior to that. And I think that that history is important for new officers today because as you go out into the, into the field and you are, are dealing with um, ethnic minorities who have a distrust of the police, police officers, we are the, the, the first line representatives of government and we have to be 
um, infinitely aware of these sensitivities and these issues that people feel when they're having interactions with the government and when the uniformed official, a guy wearing a, a gun and a badge that's got the ability to take your freedom away. And, and you, you know, you asked me like, where, what's the deal and what's the issue? I think that a, a component of that is that American policing is not unlike the church, the Catholic church, you know, and, and I'm a Catholic. And so I'll tell you that it is, it takes a long time for, for these old institutions to change and to adapt and, and to, you know, begin to look forward and to look at, at the changes and the possibilities that could be. And that's not everybody, of course, but, you know, as institutions as a whole, I mean, it is very difficult for them to begin the process of embracing change, but it starts with uh, leaders in policing understanding that change is afoot and they need to be a part of that. They can't just sit on the sidelines, cross their arms and think, you know, that, that's not us. We, we're not doing that. Um, I think that it is incumbent upon every officer in the country to look at what's happened recently and say, I own a little piece of that. When I saw what happened to George Floyd as a police chief, as a, as a recently retired chief at the time, I thought to myself immediately, what could I have done to, to be even more proactive to ensure that things like this really didn't happen, right? Because, you know, like I, I felt like what I saw George Floyd go through, like I owned a little bit of that because I'm in the system and I had to ask myself, what had I done and could I, done, could I have done more to prevent those things and to, and to be that shining example that communities lead, that communities need in order to be successful. You know, policing and communities, like that is going to be with us forever. Yes, there are gonna be some areas and we should definitely be looking at how we decouple the police from their response to everyday issues that occur that are really more social engineering issues, issues that the police don't wanna be a part of and, and don't have an expertise in, but there are so many really smart people that, that have a, a true interest and went to school for for dealing with the issues of homelessness and drug addiction and, and, and mental illness. And, and there is a place for policing and, and those issues to be decoupled and for us to uh, kind of hand off or work with those, those experts in those fields. Um, but we have a long way to go, right? And in order to build the kind of trust that was envisioned by President Obama's task force on 21st century policing, right? It, it's, it's a long way to go. And you ask me where, what the issues are. I think the issues are that, you know, leaders need to recognize um, the, the period that we're in and begin the process of instituting some of those changes, hiring and recruiting people with good hearts, with compassion, and, and those that show, you know, the right amount of courage and bravery for the, for the sliver of the percentage of the time that that stuff is needed, you're gonna need somebody who is courageous and brave. And, and people like that, people with a heart of service, people that are compassionate and caring, they're born every day. And it is incumbent upon leaders in policing to go out and find them and recruit them and bring them in to a, a service organization that is amazing in what it can accomplish when it's, when it's on the right path. Yeah, uh, that is that is really, really well said. I can remember, I came on in 1995, and I remember sitting through the police academy, and I learned the same history that you did, that policing started in England with the, sh the Shires and the Shires and the Night Watchmen and all that. And of course, it got transferred over here to the colonies and eventually to the, to the uh, 
well, the first settlements in the colonies, then the then the states when they became, you know, states and the United States broke away. And um, it wasn't until I did some digging myself into the own uh, my own history, black history, and understood, okay, it was a little more than just the night watchman. There was some slave catching going on here, slave patrols and yes. and, and lynchings and, and all this type of thing. And so, yeah, um, I, I'm very proud of uh, at least, uh, well, the state of Connecticut, we, they just started a, a new um, classes uh, for any recruits uh, who, um, anyone who's going to become a police recruit or in the recruit in the police academy, where they have to learn now uh, uh, four different classes. One is implicit bias, and one I just taught the other day, which is history of policing in up until the civil rights movement. I was very very proud to teach that class, um, and so it's a it's a it's a fledgling class. But I'm very impressed that they are looking at this and saying there there is an issue here, just like you, you articulated. There's an issue here. And there's something underneath the surface underlying that we, as administrations, politicians, have missed for, for years. And I, I think that you're right that George Floyd really touched a nerve in the heart of America and the world. And, and it showed us what we have been seeing, what Black community has been saying for such a long time and have been largely ignored. I want to ask, what do you think is so different about George Floyd? We had... Rodney King before, we had Trayvon Martin, we had Freddie Gray, we had uh, the situation of Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, we had so many different police shootings, some caught on camera before. What is so different about, about this particular incident? You know, um, that, that is a great question. And I'll tell you that, uh, you know, like I said earlier, uh, I'm, no, I'm no police savant. I'm just, I'm just curious about policing history. And so when I look back on um, our history and and the issues that we had, you know, you you look at a, a multitude of police commission reports that go back to 1929, the Wickersham Commission, uh, that outlined uh, the some of these issues that we're seeing today, and you know, followed by the Kerner Commission in 1967, and and then a whole series of of others that happened, Knapp and Overton, the Christopher Commission in 1991, uh, dealing with Rodney King, um, and then. Of course, President Obama's 21st Century Task Force on Policing in 2014, and and you're right. There was video in in the Rodney King case. There was video in the Michael. No, there wasn't video in the Michael Brown case. But we but we've had uh, you know other instances of police misconduct that have been you know captured on video, cell phone video, security camera video, officers body worn camera video, and. Uh, and you're right. It it didn't um, it didn't take it to the next level, the way that it did after George Floyd. And I think that I think that one of the things that impacted me and in conversations with with family and friends about George Floyd had to do with the fact that, you know, as we learned now, it was nine and a half minutes um, mm-hmm. that that he suffered, and and the fact that we literally saw somebody's life extinguished before our eyes in the moments that he was alive and pleading uh, until until he stopped breathing, that I think that that struck a nerve. You know, I think as, um, if you think about this, I think as human beings, you know, we are really willing, uh, many people, right? Not everyone, but I think many people are really willing to walk into a theater um, and watch a an action movie 
where you know there's you know weapons are being fired and people are being shot and and there's you know a lot of mayhem occurring and and we're entertained right mm -hmm. we are entertained by it i think that there's something in the back of our mind that says this is a movie it's not real and, and we can just continue to watch it and we're okay with it some folks really internalize what they're seeing and they can't even walk into a movie like that but many many do i mean it's obviously it's a, it's a big entertainment industry the difference is when we saw George Floyd, and, and I've seen this before, you know, when 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 community members, you know, see or, you know, you know, a population sees a body worn camera video of somebody being hurt in in the in the actions of being taken into custody or what have you, like George Floyd, it elicits a completely different reaction, and, and it's because it's real. Because now you realize this is not a movie. This is this is real life. Somebody is about to lose their life. And in the case of George Floyd, it was just an agonizing, lengthy event that um, that just I think people just had enough. I mean, we'd have we'd been having these conversations, and from a policing standpoint, I'll tell you that um, we we we'd had these opportunities. Uh, for policing organizations to see the light and to take a different course after Rodney King, you know, the riots that erupted after Rodney King were, were evident of the fact that we needed to begin to do things differently. And many police departments did, but there's still so much work to do. Um, after Ferguson, after Michael Brown's death, uh, again, you know, we had another wake up call. The president's task force on 21st century policing gave us a roadmap, gave police departments a sensible roadmap for the transformation of policing. And, and we, we, there weren't enough of us that took advantage of that the way Sorry, that it was meant to be done. Um, then, um, you know, we come, we come fast forward to, to George, George Floyd's death. And I think it was just the fact that I, the, the country had seen enough, the country had, had dealt with this enough and, and wanted to see the change. And, and like I said, you know, the, the reaction, the real reaction that people get when they see somebody lose their life on camera uh, through that agonizing period, just it, it was enough to, to make everybody um, just feel disgusted and, and wanting change. And, and, and I could see that. I could feel that. I think a lot of people did. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I, I, I asked a lot of different guests that, that same question and it really is puzzling to me and you and you you ran down to the, the different commissions throughout the years in every single commission the bottom line has always been the treatment and the conditions that african americans are living in and that is the the primary reason for many of the revolts and riots in different cities and um there's some something something different happened with this and and it, it, it's really incredible what what was your family's? You, you talked about, about you, you talked to your family and friends. What are your family and friends? I know you were an officer, chief of police. What was their uh, uh, reaction when they saw saw the video and, and just your 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 whole per police career? What was your what was what was that like? You know, um, uh, it, it was it was a combination of you know with with close friends that are still in policing. It was. Um, in the very beginning, and I, and I think you probably are going to relate to this, right, to a certain extent. You're going to say, you know, you probably said this to yourself. You probably said, um, 
you, you know, we've been in this business for a long time. So you always know, hey, there, there has to be another, there was another angle. There was something else that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, that we're, we're only seeing one side of this. Is there something else we're not, we're not getting? And um, it, it didn't take very long, you know, to realize that there, that there wasn't uh, another, another side to this thing that, that he um, got pulled out of his car at gunpoint for, you know, passing or trying to use a $20 bill, which if we think about it, he may or may not have known, right, that, that it was a counterfeit bill. That's, um, it, it just, like we've, you and I, I know that we've been in situations um, of that level, right, where you were not sure that, um, and we can't be in those officers' shoes, I get it, but, but I'm not sure that that's uh, how I would have handled it, you know, and and um, even though policing has obviously changed over the years, I think that one thing has it, and that is that we are always going to run into people, and I did when I was a young cop, that rejected um, the authority of the police officer. And so you had to use uh, your, your mannerisms and your charisma and your communication skills to get people to comply with you. And, and you weren't always, you know, you, you, just, you, you couldn't do that by you know, talking through the end of your gun in order to get people to listen to you. You, you know, you, you need to have people's um, willingness to work with you and comply with you. Otherwise you're going to have a short career. You're not going to make it. So, so the, you know, you're not going to make it for 20 years because you, you, you're, you're going to go from one conflict to the next to the next. And that's just, that's just never going to, it's never going to materialize in a, in a long successful police career. The, the you know, my family and friends, the ones that knew me closely, I mean, I guess they, you know, they, they by and large said to me, wow, you know, this is kind of what you've been talking about for a long time, you know, and, and it, like I said, it's not that I, it's not that I had a crystal ball. It's just that I, I'd always followed, you know, the incidents that had happened across the country. And I, and I never wanted, um, you know, for, for our department, whether I was in Tucson or Mesa, I never wanted us to be in a situation where that could happen to us. And, and, um, and that just takes a lot of work, right? Because I think you'd agree that it's like that, that old uh, football adage, right? That on any given Sunday, you know, the best football team can, can, uh, can be taken down. The best football team can lose to, to an opposing team. So on any given day, the very best police department um, can have a tragedy unfold on their watch. And that's why it's so important, I think, that every day, day in and day out, you know, an organization as such as a police department are talking and, and living their values, the things that they care, the honor, the integrity, the accountability, the transparency, that, that you believe in something that is greater than yourself and, and that you walk the talk day in and day out. When you talk to the members of, of communities across the country, you know, they want uh, good policing, right? They want honorable, just police officers that will take care of them. And in the words of, of Philonese Floyd, um, that when police are called, they are not the problem, right? That when mm-hmm. police are called, uh, they are the, the solution, that, that they help communities. Uh, and I think that those values between the communities and, and, and many police officers around the country, I think that those things are, are part and parcel to what strengthens and makes a community safer, right? They, so they're working together and not apart, not going to their respective corners 
um, in their beliefs, but that they're working together in order to enhance and make better uh, public and community safety. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I, I remember so many times being a police officer and when someone would call 911 and we would get there and I can remember, and I'm sure that you in your 10 years of patrol, remember other officers getting there and making the situation worse. Yes. <laughs> and it just, it just bothered me. And sometimes we would just, just, uh, you know, tell them, Hey, listen, go, go run this guy's registration. Just, uh, you know, go, yes. just get them away. Just get them away. <laughs> yes. Cause you're making this problem. You're just stoking up everything. So that, that was one of my biggest problems. And, and I loved it when I became a Sergeant and Lieutenant, I'm like, get, get out of here. We're all set. I take you. You go over there, go run this guy's registration, go go do this, go look for evidence, and, and we'll take care of this because you are just a problem, you know. <laughs> there, you know, you know, uh, I want to tell you, Captain Hunter, there are there are so many guys uh out there every day right now, this moment that are that are just like you described, like you, that have uh, a really good sense of intuition, right? They're the ones that have that emotional quotient to be able to read a situation and read a person. Um, I can remember just like you described, right? Uh, I mean, I'm a tall guy and, and back in the day, you know, I was a pretty good size, um, six foot two and, you know, a couple hundred pounds and all that. But, but, uh, it inevitably would be that there's a bigger guy out there than me, right? There's a, there's a guy that's six, five and, and two fifty. There's a guy that's six, six and two seventy five or what have you. And, and they're upset and they're having a bad day. And in comes one of our partners, just like you described. And, and a lot of times he's going to be like not the guy that is six, five, he's more like the guy that's five, five. Yeah. And he's he going to try to, to impose his will on this, on this giant of a person who's not having a good day. And, and all of a sudden, you know, we could be, um, you know, arguing and fighting for in a situation that didn't, doesn't need that doesn't need to occur. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I know exactly what you mean. And, and thank goodness. I think there are many, many good, uh, officers and supervisors in the field that are making a difference like you described it. And, and you keyed in on something that I wanted to mention. I think that that was uh, really the reasoning why I began to, to promote. And it was because I really felt as though I got to a point where I knew this uh, job as an officer pretty well. And I wanted to be able to then, you know, get to a point where I was leading people and trying to affect some of these, some of these positive changes and, and make things better. Um, and, and that's kind of what started my career in, in, um, in moving up the ranks. But not that it was a fast rise, I'll be honest with you. I think I, think, I, think I spent six or seven years as a sergeant and then like another five years as a lieutenant. And it, it, was, it, was, a long, uh, it was a long road to become a chief and assistant chief, but uh, well worth it every, every minute of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe one day I'll do a show about the short cops and the Napoleon complex. And I'm not a tall guy. Um, but, but, uh, but, but, but you're absolutely right. It was always, it's, it's the guys, my size, shorter five, five or so. It's just like, come on, man, you know, what's going on here. So I, I definitely can agree with you, you know, they, um, and that's why I always love to work with, with female officers. Cause they, you know, guys wouldn't want to challenge them and they didn't have that machismo all, all about them a, a lot. Some, some women did, but, but most of the time they just want to talk, you know? Oh my goodness. You, you, again, you know, you're so spot on, um, of course, there have been studies now that that show that uh, women in policing are outstanding. Uh, they are great communicators, uh, and, you know. And I'm speaking like in broad broad terms, like you just described. My experience with women in policing was that they were so good at de-escalation and communication. And I can remember, like time after time, 
uh, female officers would would talk these agitated uh, big guys, uh, just talk them into literally putting the handcuffs on themselves without without a fight, without anything. And you know what? Um, they're just as brave and just as courageous uh, as as anybody else. And um, and I got to see that, and I'm I'm so proud of the female officers I got to I got to work with. Uh, both in Tucson and certainly in Mesa, you know the body the body worn camera video uh, is so revealing in in these instances where our officers are dealing with folks in the middle of the night um, by themselves, and then and then when all of a sudden something you know kind of goes sideways, and and it's that officer by themselves, folks, until until backup arrives, and I had the honor of just uh seeing the exchange between a female officer and and a you know a guy that was uh basically trespassing and in the middle of the night and how she dealt with him and even though even after she was assaulted how she maintained her composure um gave chase to the guy and took him into custody and took him into custody without um without a lot of fanfare right with without a lot of fanfare she she was just Amazing, and and to see that kind of stuff, I, I tell you what, I am always going to be the biggest cheerleader for getting more women into policing because I think they are a key to the success of policing in this country, and and we have to do better than the nationwide average of uh, like twelve percent, you know, women in law enforcement. We got to do way better than that. We got to go out there and we got to recruit, and we have to make our organizations more conducive to women's success in our workplace. And, and I think that that's uh, another area, right? Of, of, of possible opportunity, no, of definite, of opportunity and improvement. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. Uh, I do plan to reach out to a woman, uh, former chief of police of Newark, I forget her name off the top of my head, but she talks a lot about this 12%, as you mentioned, yeah. the national average. Uh, and then I think in the next 20, 30 years, it's only going to rise, estimate to rise up to 30% or something like that, which is, which is huge, but we got to get there. And, um, you know, and so I think that I think that policing would definitely be a lot better for if we could have those uh, officers on, on the line. There's a new campaign aimed at bringing attention and and uh, and reaching that goal of 30 percent. And uh, I am fully behind it. Uh, it's a it's a new campaign and it's it's well worth our while and our attention to uh, make it happen. Yeah, I, I think it's important. I think it's important. Have you met anyone who uh, has agreed or disagreed? With the verdict, in other words, they thought that uh, uh, Chauvin should have should have been found innocent or or not guilty. Have you have you heard anyone? No, you know, um, I have not uh, personally met anyone who who has uh, expressed a um, uh, an opinion that sided with Chauvin's actions. Of course, on social media. You know there are um, advocates for for the uh, actions that Chauvin took, and of course there's uh, there's always the the demonization of um, of the victim in these cases. You know, and we've seen it uh, over and over over the course of our history. Um, I think that um, I think that that's uh, just it's it's reprehensible. You know, I don't believe in that. I think that. Um, I think that it's it's just sad that uh, and tragic and murderous that he that George Floyd um, died that way and and it shouldn't happen to anybody and I'll emphasize again that you know our profession should work uh, day in and day out 
to to prevent that from happening and to prevent cultures uh, that allow for that to happen. And and if I can speak really quickly on that, I wanted to tell you that, you know, when I see a, a mishap occur uh, on body worn camera video, cell phone video, and and I think to myself, yes, you know, that officer just uh, really mishandled something. Um, and it's and it's uh, depending, right? Uh, based on my experience and what I'm seeing and and things of that nature, I try to be careful not to um, make quick judgments. Although you know, I'm at home watching a video, so nobody's really you know listening to what I'm saying. But but the but the point of it is is that when I see misconduct that occurs, I don't immediately blame the officer and what I'm seeing happening. Right? Uh, I think you're going to relate to this when I tell you that oftentimes. Uh, who needs where we need to make a, a greater examination is on the leadership of that organization, because it really is ostensibly the responsibility of the leadership to create a culture that respects life, respects the sanctity of life, that follows the follows the rules, that is accountable, and 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 has the right practices in place in order for this stuff not to happen. It's the it's the leadership's responsibility. So I. I always look at that. I always look at those events and I think to myself, what's the culture of that organization? What's the culture of the leadership that that says that that's okay for that to happen? Because if you think about it, right, you're an everyday officer, you're just going about your business, you've got a body-worn camera on, uh, you engage in, in, in conduct that is um, reviewed and, and approved and day in and day out, you're kind of going about your business doing things the way either you were trained to do or, or it's you're, nobody's telling you any different, right? And then one day, you you uh, happen to do something that is has obviously been wrong all along, but you do it, and it's now captured by a cell phone video or a security camera, and all of a sudden it's a big deal, right? All of a sudden people are up in arms, and you, the officer who has been kind of you know going about your business the same way day in and day out, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, hey, now everybody. Is coming down on me for something that this is the way I've always done business, and and is it is it all of that officer's responsibility to bear, or is there also responsibility to be had by the leadership of that organization that uh, I guess implicitly allowed for some of these behaviors to occur on their watch, right? Where they should have been proactively saying, "Hey, you know, don't do this, don't do that," and and I'm not saying that every misstep or, or every mistake by an officer requires you know, heavy duty discipline? Uh, definitely not. But I do think that when an officer makes a mistake, um, you weigh it up depending upon what it is and you have a conversation with that person and, and you realign them to where you want them to be, right? That doesn't require a suspension or a written reprimand. Maybe all that requires is a conversation with the officer to say, hey, I was reviewing your body-worn camera video you know, you raised your voice in a situation that didn't require it, you know, don't do that, right? And you and then you watch for it, right? You get an acknowledgement that he understands, okay, yeah, you're right. I God, I shouldn't have said that. You get an acknowledgement and you get him get him back on the right track. But that's how you maintain, I think, the kind of accountability that I'm talking about that is required and, and necessary for organizations to function at a higher level. I'm really glad that you mentioned the how the administrations and leadership of an organization really have a lot to, to to a lot of blame that they must take upon themselves and i think that that 
of course, that has been a problem. You know, there's 18,000 police departments in this country, you know, 50 different states, and not including the U.S. territories and all that. So I think that that we really have to take a look at that. And that's something that that people um, really need to understand. And, and your, your analogy is correct, that an officer who's been trained this way, doing a certain thing a certain way all of his life, um, all, of, all of his uh, a career anyway, and then, you know, he gets scrutinized by the by a body one camera or by some 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 um, civilian and he doesn't understand why. And I think that that has, has been so much of the problem. Um, I can remember I was doing some research one time and just looking at the statistics of and certain I'm, I'm not trying to pick on the Southwest, but that's where you're from. So we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they, but I'm sure that you're aware that, that in the Southwest, that's where the a, a vast majority of the police shootings of, of citizens were occurring for, for quite some time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I can remember a sheriff down there. I think it was a sheriff. He was, I think it was a sheriff. And I don't know if it was uh, Arizona, New Mexico, somewhere, somewhere around there said that, um, uh, you know, listen. If something goes wrong, we just shoot the guy. We'll pay that. We'll pay the family uh, a few million dollars, and he'll go away. You ever, did you ever hear a quote like that by a sheriff down there? No, you know, no, okay. I, I, I never did. I never, okay, I never, okay I, good. And, and trust, <laughs> trust you, me. That's when I would have remembered. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I read it. I read it some somewhere. Um, but, but, uh, but, my point is, is that um, leadership matters, and if this sheriff a high-ranking official in this department is making these kind of statements that that has a, a resonating ripple effect that that transfers down to the down to the body um and it really takes a lot of work and effort for our new sheriff forward-thinking sheriff progressive sheriff uh to say listen we're not going to do that that type of thing yeah i think about joe or 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 Pio. am i saying his name right joe or Pio, whatever his name is yeah. that that, yes. that guy yeah that that I hesitate. I hesitate to call him a guy, <laughs> you know, a clown. <laughs> but, but you know, just just your thoughts about about that type of leadership style. You you know, um, it it, it uh, you're right, right. Um, I don't know if you if you've uh, had the experience of talking to uh, folks that review um, canine units, you know, and and one of the things that um, that is uh, kind of a an idea an ideology that will will um, be will come up in conversation with canine officers and is the understanding that um, sometimes the canine is is a reflection of the dog handler and and it kind of like well if you if the dog is misbehaving or if the dog is doing this that or the other sometimes you really got to look at you know up leash right you got to look at the handler of the of the canine to to get a better understanding if the canine is um is kind of uh, uh an extension of the behaviors of the human being that's behind you know that's leading it and i think that you're absolutely right in in large organizations or, or in leadership positions you know i think you and i could probably go back to our times uh as a uh, squad supervisors patrol sergeants and there were squads out there that um, handled themselves, uh, behaved a certain way, and they were a, a reflection of the type of sergeant, the type of leader that they had. Mm. And, and so I think that those things um, can certainly still be in play, right? That, um, you know, you could have folks that rise to the level of leadership of, of you know, becoming a sheriff or, or a police chief, 
and, and whose ideology is still kind of grounded in the old way of doing things. And, and they're reluctant to acknowledge that change is afoot and that we must progress and that we must look at policing uh, through a lens that our entire country is asking us to do, right? There was a poll that came out on Friday that said uh, something like six out of 10 Americans want to see uh, changes and improvement in policing. And I think that's significant. I think that that is, that is, that is a wake-up call. And um, again, you know, I, I, I talk, I speak on this issue with a deep empathy for the loss of George Floyd that, um, that has brought about this, this change in policing that we're seeing. And, and it's just so sad that it took that for us to be at this place where, where there's a great awakening and awareness of the changes that have to occur. And, and so, you know, oftentimes in policing, you know, we, we recoil at the idea of saying that you have to reform, right? And it's, and we have to realize that that's a human reaction, right? If you were talking to a doctor or a lawyer or, or anybody in any profession, and you went to them, and you said, Hey, you know, I don't like the way you're doing business. We need to reform you. Well, that's never going to go over well, and so I think that I think that language matters. I think that um, I really try to say that that we're going through a transformational period, you know, and I think that that's true. I think that when folks talk about uh, re-envisioning and reimagining police, it involves uh, uh, us having a better understanding of where we fit in the criminal justice system. And, and while we're at it, while we're talking about that. You know, the criminal justice system is not just uh, you and I, the police that respond to calls. It is, it is the the laws that are written into the books that call us to to have to go to these calls for service. And you know, and sometimes you and I probably wonder why is there a law for this, right? Why why do we have a law for loose cigarettes? Uh, <laughs> you know, and 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 um, uh, th then you have. Uh, prosecutors, right? That and and judges, and there's that whole criminal justice system, that other aspect of things, that sometimes is is very unforgiving, right? For people that are down and out, who uh, have been involved in in really you know petty theft, petty crimes, uh, because remember, there, there's only like a sliver of our entire society, a sliver of our entire society that is really violent, um, dedicated to harming others dedicated to causing harm. And for the, for that small segment of our population, yes, we need to be ultra careful. We need to be ultra vigilant and make sure that they are not harming others. But the vast majority of folks, Captain Hunter, you remember the guy that ran a red light and had an expired driver's license, the guy that ran a red light and, and had no insurance and lost his job. And then one thing leads to another. And next thing you know, his license is suspended. I mean, is, is, is he a complete criminal? And especially, you know, he's not driving drunk. He just Ran a red light. Now he has no license, no no job. He can't pay his fines. I mean, there's got to be a better way to deal with some of these things um, that still keeps you know order within our society and and allows um, uh, for people to to still live their lives uh, without being in fear. I'm really glad that you that you mentioned that because that that bothers me. And you're absolutely right. Why do we have law, laws about this? Why can't we develop a different way of 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 dealing with these types of violations and fractions without putting people in jail, destroying their life, stopping them their ability to get a job in the future? It just it just makes no sense. And we're creating the very thing that we're trying to suppress. You know, so 
Um, you've heard that you've heard, I'm sure you've heard this, right? We can't arrest our way out of it. And, and it's so true. It's, it's true. We can't. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, am always in the camp that, uh, you know, we, we got to stop being, uh, the tools of, uh, big co corporations, big companies, right? Um, we, we the, the school to prison pipeline, uh, the, uh, prison industrial complex, uh, we gotta we gotta take ourselves out of that, and because we're we're creating uh, monsters, we're creating we're taking fathers out of the homes, we're taking mothers out of the homes, we're making people turn to ulterior alternative motives to uh, support their support themselves, um, and it's just not healthy, and it's creating more and more and more of a problem. So, you, you know, I think uh, I think so much of the issues that we're dealing with today, right? They go back to. Um, I think about the 1970s, and uh, I think it was the Nixon administration at the time, but, you know, we're really at a crossroads as a country where we, we could have um, taken one path or the other in how we addressed the, the social ills of our time at back then, right? Because we were facing, um, we were facing issues of poverty, and, you know, there, there, was, uh, there were minority communities that were beginning to show some signs of stress and suffering. And, and we were dealing with, with crime. Um, but as a country, I think we made a conscious decision that we were going to invest everything into the law enforcement and, and, and the arrest and the creation of laws that would create the kind of social order that we thought back then that we needed to have. Um, I guess I'm hopeful that I look at where we're at as a country today and that we're beginning to re-examine, you know, some of the decisions that we made. And, and it's, and it's normal, right? We're human beings. We are geared and we're wired to evolve and to continue to think about better ways to do things. And, and so when we look at our officers and our police departments today, right, they are functioning in a, in a criminal justice system in a, in a, in a system of our society that they did not create. They didn't create these laws. They are working within this system that is that was built before them. And they're trying because we have really good officers out there day in and day out trying to do their best. But they're working within a system that only gives them like a very short set of, of possibilities for how to resolve these issues when they come before them, right? They, they've got a, a 911 complainant. They've got a law that's been broken. They've got a person in front of them who by, you know, all, 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 appearances looks like that's the person that did it and it's and it's kind of a low level bs thing and so now the officer is faced with dealing with this and, and the one tool that he has in front of him right i have to make an arrest i have to take this person away from here and we just have to reimagine and re-envision and re-engineer some of the systems that we created a long time ago to try to get us get us on a better track yeah no no i definitely i definitely agree with you i don't i want to kind of dig into that a little bit this this whole idea of the pendulum swinging, right? You, you talked about the Nixon administration. Next thing you know, they're they're citing law and order. We go to from one swing to we get to uh, Bill Clinton, the crime bill. We get to another swing of uh, President Obama in the twenty first century policing initiative, uh, and then we get to another swing uh, with the Trump administration and William Barr's administration, <clears throat> saying we're going to go in a completely different direction. <laughs> Right. I mean, and, and yeah. so uh, and, and so now we're, we're, you know, I assume that the Biden administration under Harris and, and, and others are going to try to swing back in this other direction. 
this do you think that the Trump administration um, did any damage to the public relations community, public relations, police relations uh, community? Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I was going to talk about it earlier, but, you know, we've had such a great conversation. I forgot about bringing it up. And it is that policing from as far back as the, um, you know, the slave patrols, and then it went to the, you know, the, the, the political model of policing in the early 1900s where politicians were really involved in, in the matters of policing. We evolved from that to the professional model of policing, which was really encapsulated a lot by um, the Hollywood uh, uh, adaptation of what that looked like, the professional model, you know, Joe Friday, Dragnet, yes, <laughs> yes sir, no sir. Um, and, 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 and it was thanks to really smart people, you know, uh, really smart folks in in those 1970s that started pointing us in the direction of community-oriented policing. And, and we started to get on a better path. And, and that is really, to me, community-oriented policing is exactly that, right? It is the community uh, in working in a relationship uh, way with policing and, and to ensure that they have the outcomes that they're looking for. It, it's, um, it's, it's the, it's, it's what we should have stuck with. But thanks to the Oklahoma City bombing uh, in the 1990s, you know, thanks to the um, to the to the bombing of um, an Olympic Park during the Atlanta Olympics, uh, you know, 9-11 happened. You know, we started to focus on terrorism, right? We started to focus and, and take our eye off community policing and all the things that were working that we needed to do there. And we started to really focus on on these other issues of um, of terrorism. And let's not forget that it was the federal government who was funding and who was giving us the training and the equipment uh, to ensure that the homeland was protected from you know, the possibility of, of, uh, of terrorism. And that, that I think was the, the, uh, the biggest pivot point that we had from guardian to warrior, where we started to look at everybody that didn't look like us as kind of like, whoa, you know, this person could, you know, be packing a bomb and we need to, you know, make sure that, that we're going to be safe in protecting our communities. And I get it. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the country went through a trauma of 9-11 and we, and we were starting to tilt that way. But it, it, it unfortunately took us completely away from the primary mission of community policing. And I think that, you know, we need to go back to that. I, need, I, think, that, uh, I think that we are on the cusp of another a transformational period, the same way that we have been through in the past. And that transformational period is one where we are going to move forward into, into a place where we have better outcomes in, in those heated exchanges between community members and police officers that, that sometimes result in tragedies. I think that there are ways to mitigate that and, and to minimize that uh, so that lives aren't lost in the community or the police side, that both parties can walk away from those exchanges safely. Now to your question about whether or not the last administration had a negative impact on the way that, um, that law enforcement is seen across the country in kind of today's, in today's view, in today's eyes. And I think that, I think there were many times that I was uh, disappointed to see you know, our law enforcement brothers and sisters uh, standing behind the president mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately, you know, giggling or 
chuckling to to some really off-color commentary and and just jokes or or comments that were made that were in bad taste that that that, that they did not further the mission of public safety or community engagement or relationship building with with our, our country at large, right? There's already a large segment of the population that, that lacks trust in government and the police. And we have to do everything we can day in and day out to build those bridges. And, and certainly events like a, the kind that I saw um, were not proactive and, and didn't do anything to further that or to help that. As a matter of fact, I think they harmed that. And, and so, you know, we got a long way to go. And, 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 I, and I believe that every day that we hire young men and women that have a heart of service, they have that opportunity to turn this around because they are our greatest opportunity going forward. The people that we hire today are gonna to be the leaders of these policing organizations in the future. And we have to make sure that we get the right ones that have compassion and care and courage and bravery when they need it. Yeah. Uh, I too was disappointed to see a lot of the chiefs smiling, laughing, and joking when when he was saying that the the craziness that was that he was amongst the many things that he said that was just ridiculous in my opinion. Um, what? Uh, how many chiefs would you say um, think along the same lines that you do? You, you know, I uh, uh, I had the, the the pleasure and the honor of. Um, being with uh, an organization called Major City Chiefs Association. It, it's um, uh, 67 or 69 or so of the biggest police departments in the biggest cities across the country. And, and I got to attend uh, many meetings and I sat at the table with chiefs as an assistant chief with Tucson and certainly as a, as a chief with Mesa. And I, could, I gotta tell you that um, there is great hope uh, out there. We have amazing leaders uh, at all ranks that are, that are ready to take on the challenge that we're having today and are having conversations day in and day out. You know, I, I, stay, I stay active in organizations and think tanks like the National Police Foundation, uh, the Police Executive Research Forum, the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And these conversations about how to improve policing are going on on a weekly basis. And, and I know, you know, the challenge of having you know, as we've often heard, 18,000 police departments, nearly 700, 800,000 police officers. The, the challenge of getting to the smaller organizations and ensuring that, um, that they are doing their very best, that those leaders are doing their very best at reaching and, 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 and doing the right things in their communities. The, the IACP has a long, long reach and has really uh, a great advantage when it comes to uh, putting forth uh, progressive ideas and supporting those chiefs in those positions. And, and here's one thing that I think goes unmentioned. I think that I think that is incumbent upon police leaders and union leaders and the FOP to really come together at this period right now and to join hands and to and to go forward and understand that you know policing in this country is facing a headwind. Uh, of 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 angst and and scrutiny from the public that we serve, and so we have to work together. We have to work together with the unions and the FOP in order to uh, make the necessary changes that are going to keep the community safe and are going to keep the officers safe. Right. So, if you do everything you can to train and equip our officers 
with the with the right knowledge and the understanding of when and how to use their authority and and how to de-escalate and how to stay safe and, and do the things that they need in order to have a successful career, then I think wholeheartedly that police unions and the FOP would want to stand shoulder to shoulder with police leaders across the country to make sure that that happened because we are talking about the best interest of the guys and the gals that are doing the work day in and day out. Right now, as you and I speak, right, there, there is a there is the family of an officer that is getting ready to see him or her walk out the door, right, for a shift in the evening. And they have hope in their heart that their loved one is going to be safe. And these folks that are going out there every day, I think Captain Hunter, you and I would agree that they don't leave the door thinking to themselves, you know, gee, I can't wait to go out there and really screw something up tonight, right? <laughs> they, they're going out there to try to do their best. Right. And it is incumbent upon leaders in, in policing and leaders in the unions to do everything they can to help them be successful. Yeah. Yeah. A tough question for you. Have you ever met any chief who said all these reform changes and all this stuff is just nonsense? We got to keep with it. double down on what we're doing. Uh, the harder, the better, the more punishment, the better. Have you ever met any chiefs or deputies or uh, anyone of high ranking official who thought along those lines? You know, um, uh, obviously, I've been I've been in this profession for a long time. So, uh, you know, maybe somebody doesn't say it uh, you know, <laughs> explicitly the way you just described, but you can certainly but you can certainly uh, pick up on the vibe. You know, I mean, you know, we don't get to this level in policing without having, uh, you know, a fair amount of intuitiveness and, and understanding and reading between the lines. So. So yeah, I mean, I think that that you know, every now and then you still have somebody who is is not quite buying in, and they're having a tough time, and it's maybe because you know they grew up in an era that really uh, suited you know their personality or what have you, and and they've you know grown through the ranks and it's worked for them, but um, but I think we all need to kind of really look around and 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 determine that this is just not healthy for our officers and it's not healthy for our democracy or, or our citizens. And, um, you know, the title of the book is aspirational in nature, right? I mean, it's a vision that I have do no harm, yeah. right? And a vision should be something that is hard to achieve. It's, it's long reaching. It's, it's a, a tough, tough thing to do. And, and in policing, right. Saying that your vision is to do no harm. Well, I mean, that right away should make your eyebrow raise because it's kind of like, wow, yeah, you, you got some high goals. But it's true, right? It should be our vision to um, build departments and law enforcement organizations, professional organizations that are out there doing their very best um, to save lives, uh, to maintain public safety, and and to keep communities safe. And, and it's not that it's not that that can't be done. I mean, you know, maintaining public safety and maintaining safe officers, those are not two concepts that should be foreign to each other. They strengthen one another. Mm. Law enforcement is um, is really dealing with uh, with the serious threat that's coming along, uh, and that's the white supremacist threat that is uh, that are infiltrating law enforcement and the military. Um, uh, many of them we under understanding now that were involved or at least tried to help out or, or didn't do anything about the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, what should law enforcement officers, departments, administrations do 
uh, to weed out white, the threat of white supremacists in, within their ranks? Okay, so I think that first off, you know, we need to uh, have an acknowledgement, and I think that it's happened, you know, across the country. We, you know, we police departments are generally speaking a a reflection to some extent of the population of the country, and um, and rightfully so. I mean, and, and as you know, you know, we should do more to integrate that a lot better, and and to make sure that we have that balance across the country, so that so that we have uh, greater representation for the people that we're serving and protecting. And, and so I guess it's no surprise, right, when we learn that in and amongst our ranks, we have uh, members of law enforcement who are still espousing, you know, ideologies that uh, should have been left behind a long time ago. And, um, and it certainly is a, a situation that I think has to be dealt with because there is no room uh, for our law enforcement and our profession today to have people that have uh, ideologies that run afoul to the protection of, of everybody that we come in contact with. doesn't matter what they look like or what they believe in or what they, what they tell us, to be honest with you. Um, our job is to remain neutral and to, and to protect them and protect their, their rights to free speech. But, um, but that can be difficult if you're harboring, you know, ideology that, uh, that 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 makes you feel as though you are superior to the people that you're dealing with and and there is no place in our profession for that and i think that we need to continue to work to um to not allow for that kind of culture to be occurring in and amongst our ranks and and you asked me i think how do we prevent that i think that we continue to be very careful about the persons that we allow to be a part of this profession to, to have the honor um, to represent all the good men and women that have come before us and to wear the badge, uh, to make sure that, that going forward, we have people that truly believe in, in the, in the ethos of, of professional policing in this country, that, uh, you will protect everybody's rights and that you are, uh, determined to protect the sanctity and, and hold dear the sanctity of life. I think that, that, uh, we have a lot of work to do. And I think that, um, I think that it is, you know, hugely disappointing for for many of us that believe in good policing when we come face to face with the fact that um, we could have people in our ranks that uh, that espouse this, uh, you know, wicked wicked ideology that they could be, you know, superior to others. When in fact, we we are here to serve. That's the reason why I joined. I'm pretty sure that's probably the reason why you joined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Chief, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. What are you doing with yourself now? Are you fishing, retired? What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I have a great passion for, for this work. I, I, um, right now I'm trying to get the good word out of, of how you can incorporate the values of an organization with the values of a community in order to elevate that, uh, law enforcement organization to operate at a greater level, right? And to, and to, um, and to be better than, than what they ever thought possible based on building a strategic plan that encompasses uh, their, their relativity to the goals of the community and, and looking forward and leaning forward, trying to make a better organization. So I'm doing that. Um, there's some consulting. And of course, you know, I am still, I'm still, 
I'm, I'm still prepared to go back into uh, policing and make a contribution. I really think that uh, I really think that that is this is the right time. I certainly have the energy and the passion uh, to return to the work of um, of ensuring and holding dear the very good police officers in this country, and simultaneously helping our communities uh, be safer uh, and have better relationships, and and understanding the role that police should play versus the roles that um, social service agencies should play and and that we are there as a support role to that versus taking on all these other responsibilities there are our officers um, would rather not do right and and I think that the community would want that as well so there's a lot of good work to be done and I think I, I want to be a part of that very good so if you do get back into it and you're looking for a deputy uh give me a shout i would really appreciate it so. you got it <laughs> uh, you know and, and i want to i want to again i want to thank you uh i'll give you the last word but i want to thank you again because i think that the that the work that you do in bringing the guests on your show that uh, provide a balanced view of policing in this country is immensely important to the people that listen to your podcast you know, you you listen to both sides and you 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 take on the arguments that are pro and con, and you really paint a balanced picture uh, to the very uh, nuanced and complicated world of law enforcement and policing in the United States. And and that's not easy, but I think that day in and day out, your podcast and the message you bring is positive and you shed light on some really complicated issues. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, the, the pleasure is all mine. Can I ask you how you found the podcast? Uh, I I was like I said, you know, I'm like a I'm like a sponge. I'm always constantly trying to to learn more about uh, the the topic of policing and the issues that are that are contemporary in the country. And and I, I searched, I searched, and uh, I saw yours, uh, your your podcast. Uh, uh, you know the the screenshot of the podcast caught my attention, right? I think it's like a like a blue and a purple uh, kind of color, yeah. and you know Captain Hunter. So I thought, okay, I'll click on this, and I started looking at your your descriptions of the some of the people that you brought on to talk to and, and the issues, and and certainly, you know that big uh, narrative that you have right underneath your podcast to talk about what you're what you're trying to accomplish. That to me was key. I wanted to hear what you had to say, and, and so, yeah, man, I've been I've been listening. I, I went back and I started listening to you from the beginning, and no, caught up. Oh, geez, don't do that. I try to listen to some of, some of the beginning episodes. I'm like, oh my god, this guy sounds terrible. He's got, <laughs> he's got to get better. <laughs> I think you're doing a great job, and I'm and I'm really happy that you're around and, and you great service. So, and the best of luck to you with your endeavors and and your consulting and your um, certainly your book as well. I appreciate it. Thank you. It, it really is high praise coming from you. I, I, I really mean that. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I, you know, I'd like to have you back on. Hopefully we can talk about something a little more positive than what's going on in the country. Maybe in a couple of months we could talk about, you know, how we turn things around for the better. But, uh, but I, appreci I, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time out. I really, really am honored that you come out. Thank you, Captain Hunter. Take care. Sure. Police reform is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called Police Reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. 
Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss and awry between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Reform today.